And welcome to this first segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show that looks at understanding and overcoming the rural-urban divide. And for this, our very first program, I am thrilled to have as my guest Dr. Kathy Kramer, a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author of a book entitled The Politics of Resentment. This is a book that came out in 2016 and I read it, was extraordinarily both moved and um, educated by the book, so much so that I sent Kathy an email and said, hey, that's a heck of a book. Can we talk? And so since then, roughly two years ago, uh, I've come to know Kathy a little bit, and she's come to be an incredibly helpful and supportive, I'll say, partner in this desire to understand and begin to overcome the divides that face us. So, Kathy, welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's truly an honor to be a part of your podcast. So I want to jump into the substance of the book and other insights you have. But before that, I do want to learn a little bit more about you. You you are, I hate to say it, but you are like so modest and mild-mannered that you fit exactly the kind of person I would have thought of when I wondered what somebody from Wisconsin was like. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. So uh, you've, you've always, in spite of all of your brilliance and your accomplishments, you're just like oh. so modest to a fault. But tell me a little bit about where you Thanks. came from, like your, a little bit about your background, your family, and then, then a bit about your career. Well, sure. So I did come from Wisconsin. I was born in Northern Illinois, to be honest. Ah, okay. Uh, there you go. Moved when I was four to Wisconsin. And I have one sibling, my brother Scott, who lives just about uh, 13 minutes from me right now. And um, I am ha- a mom to a 15 year old daughter. Uh, I'm engaged to be married to a wonderful person whom I met during the pandemic. That's a silver lining of the pandemic, but I am pretty much a lifelong Wisconsinite. I was very lucky to get a job at University of Wisconsin-Madison just as I was finishing up my PhD, and I've been there my whole career. And and Um, how long is that, roughly? Yeah, since 2000. I was a new professor in the fall of 2000, and um, I, uh, I do love Wisconsin. And um, it, it has broken my heart over and over, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, especially in the past 10, 15 years. But, um, and we'll talk about that as kind of the, yeah. the how and the why of that. Before we get to your book, tell me a little bit about what you uh, do and what your kind of main subjects are that you teach. You- yeah, I'd be happy to. So I study public opinion um, primarily in American politics. And throughout my career, the thing that has always fascinated me is the way people understand politics and how that motivates sort of whether or not they get involved in politics and but basically what they think and why they think what they do. And so I teach undergraduates and graduate students in both public opinion and political communication, political participation, broadly what we call political behavior, just the way ordinary people think and act about politics. 
So it's it's political science, but more at the level of almost like human and human interaction and and the social context rather than grand political theory. Yeah. So I is that right? I mean, that's that's what I was taking. No, I think that's absolutely right. So just across the field of political science. What I do is different from people who study what we call institutions like the presidency and Congress. And it's also different from um, the p- political philosophers or people who study democratic theory, because democratic theory is important to what I do. But what I study is just people, you know, yeah. how people interact with one another and with their governments or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and in recent years, yeah, my focus has really been on divisions among people. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's move into that. Wisconsin's been breaking your heart somewhat over the last decade plus. Let me say that um, much of the uh, much of the country is breaking my heart <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, even as so many wonderful people are working to do such good things in our country, it is it is hard not yeah. to have a broken heart with the the level to which our our politics, our political conversations have devolved. Your book really got the wheels turning for me. And so what I'd like you to do is first talk a little bit about the methodology in the sense of like, how did you sure. go about getting the information and talking to the folks that you that, that comprise the gist of the book? Well, I started the research for the book in 2007. And by that point in my career, so I'd been a professor for about seven years. And I learned over and over that if the the thing that fascinates me is how people think about politics, I knew at that point that the best way for me to study that was to listen to people. You know, just that's a kind of it, radical it, notion. I'm, we might yeah, have to, I know. We that's might why have to I end paused. the program right now. <laughs> right. That's why I pause because it's ridiculous that it's so radical that if you study public opinion, what you a good way of doing that is to listen to people, <laughs> and that's because we are we have become over reliant on a scientific sample mm-hmm. public opinion polls. Mm-hmm. Public opinion polls are pretty magical in the way. You can sample from a population and say with a high degree of accuracy what they're thinking about a set of issues or dispositions toward government or other people um, within a short span of time. Like it's a very efficient way of taking the pulse of a population. Mm -hmm. However, if you wonder why they're thinking what they're thinking, you can get at that through surveys. But for me, a huge part of why people think what they do about politics is about identity and through the sort of the lenses or the worldviews, perspectives, whatever you want to call that, that those things, the filters through which they see the world. And I, I am best able to observe that by listening to people explain themselves, explain their lives, relate themselves to other people. So ideally, if they're talking in a group of people that they know, Right. They're people like they're people, people like us, Mm -hmm. because in conversations in that kind of setting and ideally in a place that they're comfortable in, like a physical setting in which they're comfortable in, you can hear that stuff. You can hear people explain themselves to you, right, who they are, the kind of people that they are. And so what I did in Wisconsin was to sample communities from across the state that differed in political leanings, but also socioeconomic backgrounds, so type of industry, population density, average income, those types of things. 
because to be honest at the time I wasn't studying the rural versus urban divide I didn't know it existed mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and I I pause and laugh at that one too because now it, it just seems so obvious right but at the time in 2007 Wisconsin was near and dear to my heart I thought I knew it like the back of my hand and it is shaped like a hand right mm-hmm. <laughs> like a back of a hand but um I didn't because I had basically lived in cities my whole life and and I understand that now, even though I thought I was a small town girl, because the town I grew up in was 7,000 people at the time I was growing up. But in Wisconsin, that's big. You know, mm-hmm. it's big. Mm-hmm. There's lots of towns that are 500 or fewer. Yeah, that's much like, in that sense, so, much much like where I am in southwest Virginia, for sure. I live in, in Abingdon, which yeah. is 8,000 people, and that's like one of the biggest towns around, for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. So, so talk about how, how you actually, because you, you didn't, like, convene focus groups of people no. in a studio or a church basement. You went to where people already were gathering. Describe that a little bit in some yeah. examples. Yeah. Well, like I said, I wanted to talk with people who talk with each other normally in a place that they're comfortable in. And in previous work, I had studied people in kind of neighborhood gathering spaces a bit. And so I was looking for places that are kind of semi-public, like a diner or McDonald's or some other place where a stranger could walk in and say, hi, can I join you? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I asked people, Uh, around the state in these communities I had sampled, where in such and such Wisconsin do people get together on a regular basis that I maybe could get access to? And they pointed me to diners and McDonald's, but also gas stations. So that was something I didn't know, that in the very small communities, gas stations around the coffee urns at the break of dawn is where you're going to find a group of folks getting ready for the day, sometimes retirees who are used to getting out of the house, Um, and want a place to hang out. Church basements at times, too, even if people aren't members of the congregation in many of the smaller communities, you know. But at the time, I wasn't just studying smaller communities, and and that becomes important for what I learned later on. But I literally just walked into these places and said, Hi, I'm Kathy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I study public opinion. Do you mind if I join you? And That's bold. That's bold. And, and what was the reception like? Was there a little bit of a hesitation from any of the sure. groups? Well, yeah, but it, it was not hostile, except in a few rare circumstances. Instead, it was surprise, curiosity, mm-hmm. like this is unusual. Because you can imagine <laughs> a group of people who are used to every morning at 630 in the morning or whatever, gathering in their gas station And it's just been the six of them or the nine of them or the three of them for decades. And in comes this strange woman, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So people were curious, but usually they just said, sure, Mm. sure. And then they, you know, and then they welcome me. And I would ask very open-ended questions and try to just listen, not and not intrude too much. But I would just say, no, seriously, I'm just here to learn from you all. And what are the big concerns around around here? Amazing. Was it about two dozen communities that you did this yeah in? uh 27 i think 27. and about how many times did you end up visiting with yeah. this these groups and over what period of time yeah so it was about five years 2007 to 2012 but uh i would say on average maybe three times per group so let's um given the time constraints we have let's move a little sure. bit into 
what you learned from your own experience, what would you say the most important takeaways were from this? The biggest takeaway for me was that there was something distinctive being said in the rural places. And it, I went, I was in all corners of the state, but the theme was primarily the same. And it was this theme of feeling like they weren't getting their fair share. And I don't mean to say everybody I encountered in a rural community sounded this tune. Mm-hmm. But many, many people did. And across different places, it, it really did sound the same. But it, it was this, you know, this sense of not getting their fair share in three important ways is the way I think about it. So one was we don't get get our fair share of resources or stuff or money, mm-hmm. meaning all the good jobs are in the cities. Um, it seems like our taxes are really high and it sure seems like the government isn't spending them on our communities because look around and you know, this place has seen better days and whatever the government is doing sure doesn't seem to be working for people like us. Mm -hmm. So in just that general, like the money is not coming here. We're not getting our fair share of money. Another was we're not getting our fair share of attention or power because you all in Madison, which is the state capital of Wisconsin, you make all the decisions and you communicate them out to the rest of us. You don't come out here and ask, what our big concerns are, except you, Kathy, and you're, uh, we don't know what's up with you. You're a little odd, but like you're the first, you know, person from Madison who's, who we've met, who come out, has come out here and asked, or people in Milwaukee, similar theme. So decisions were made the two big cities in the state, Madison and Milwaukee, and, and communicated outward, not little listening in reverse. And then the third way in which they weren't getting their fair share in their eyes was respect. So there was this sense that you know, it's not just that you're not, you all aren't listening, but you don't like us. Mm. Like you think we're uneducated and backward and racist and sexist and we're a bunch of country bumpkins. You don't even like us. Mm-hmm. And all, you know, everything that's important, and I'm, I'm, I am overstating this a bit, but the movies, the content of our news, like it's not about us or places like this. It's about the cities. And so we, I'll give you one brief example. When sure. when the Great Recession happened and then there was a recovery, there was all all these news articles and stories about how the economy was bouncing back. And people in rural Wisconsin were like, what are they talking about? Right. Since when are we is our economy bouncing back? And and their struggles or the lack of a of a rebound just wasn't showing up in the news. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say one other thing that's important to what I learned. I was in the field in 2007. And then the subtitle of my book talks about Scott Walker, who became our governor. Because the other part of what I learned was this sentiment was not new to me. I'm not the first person to hear this, right? Mm, right. And it wasn't new in 2007. But what has changed, I think, in recent years is the way politicians use it to great effect. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you stand, you can talk about that as hearing it and responding to it, or you can talk about it as taking advantage of it and emphasizing this divide between rural and urban areas. Putting fuel on the fire in a way. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. What's the example that you wanted to share? When Governor Walker ran for governor for the first time, the example that 
has always stuck in my mind was there the his his predecessor um, had had uh, applied for and received eight hundred and ten million dollars in federal funding for a high speed rail line between Milwaukee and Madison. And Scott Walker, when he was running for office, said, if I become governor, I'm not taking that money because that's money that's not going to that's going to go to those two places, Madison and Milwaukee, and not to the rest of us. I'm quoting him here. Mm -hmm. And he made the train like a symbol of the rural versus urban divide without ever saying rural versus urban. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was genius in my mind because he was saying to people, I'm going to stand with you all, not with people in Madison and Milwaukee. And that was a popular position in the countryside? Yeah. 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 You talk also in the book, I remember a couple, three different examples that, that I can't remember precisely, but maybe you want to comment on this a little. One was about how one of the other big issues in Scott Walker's tenure, um, especially around the recall, was um, the teachers union. And, yeah. and it was somewhat surprising to me initially how, in a way, unsympathetic a lot of the folks you talked to were to the teachers. And I, yeah. and I wonder about that. And then the other one was the sense that a number of your folks expressed, I think they, they might have been farmers or they might have just been people who'd grown up on the land, about feeling like nobody ever asked them what they thought about how things should be done. That when people came from yeah. the state, from the Department of Natural Resources or whatever it was, it was kind of like, here's what you need to do. And these folks who'd been maybe managing the land pretty well for generations, th their opinions yeah. were never sought. So I, I wonder if you might yeah. comment a little bit about either of those. Yeah, well, the teachers union, that is, that's a more, much more prominent example than even the high-speed rail line. So Shortly after Scott Walker took office, he um, proposed this budget repair bill that basically undercut all public employee unions in the state, and including me. Like, mm -hmm. I work for the University of Wisconsin-Madison, so mm -hmm. it included me, I should say that. And it was super unpopular in Madison, like a, intensely unpopular, to the extent of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people protesting at certain points while this bill was being contemplated but you could drive not that far out of madison and people would say things like it's about time it's mm. about time that those public employees pay in more of their fair share because i i would hear things like and even even before scott walker ran for governor right i would hear things like kathy like, how many classes do you teach? What are you doing driving around the state in your little Volkswagen Jetta? Like, okay, explain this to me. You're a public employee and you get to drive around and have coffee with people like me and you're working hard? How is that hard work? And don't you have your summers off? And there was this perception that public employees are basically people who sit behind desks or if they're school teachers, sure, they work hard but they get great benefits. And in a lot of these smaller towns, it, it was empirically the case or factually the case that they made higher salaries on average than everyone else in the town. It's not the case in the cities, yeah. um, but in some of these smaller places it was. And there was this sense that something is broken because I, as a small town resident, am working multiple jobs, breaking my back, oftentimes in physical labor to make ends meet. And I can't afford health care. This is pre-Obamacare, mind you. Mm -hmm. um, and I sure can't afford dental care. 
And my taxes keep going up because I'm paying for that stuff for public employees who don't seem to be working very hard. Yeah. Thank you, Scott Walker, yeah, yeah. for making that right. Now, another, another thing you grapple with in your book that is a huge part of the larger debate about what the underlying issues are is the question of race and where does race fit into this? And there's a pretty strong yeah. belief, uh, I would say an assumption, but a strong belief among many on the progressive liberal side that race is the overwhelming factor, that everything else yeah. pales in comparison and that really that's the bottom line. People are, white people are pissed off that they've lost some of their privilege and so they're blaming black people and they may not do it directly or overtly, but that's the real yeah. motivation. So you, you grapple with that and, and the truth, some of the truth in that, but you also talk about, and I love the way you said this, people making calculations of injustice to them that have happened to themselves. Tell, talk a little bit about what that meant. Yeah. Well, what I wrote in my book was race is undeniably a part of what's going on here. And when people contrast themselves with the cities, part of that is about race especially in a place like Wisconsin, where it's a highly segregated state. And by and large, people of color live in the cities. But you have to understand the fullness of what's going on for people if you actually care about racial justice. Because if we really did not want people to walk away from that book and say, see, I told you, the problem is they're all a bunch of racists. Because I don't find that productive. I think if we actually want to get to a place where we treat each other with dignity, we're not getting there by telling ourselves, yeah, it's okay to hate them because that's the problem. Because the problem is not each other. The problem is the system is horribly broken. Our economy does not work for the vast majority of people in it. And to the extent that we scapegoat each other, we're not focusing our attention on what needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Now, having said all that, many people have schooled me since my book came out on the depth of racism in this country. The summer of 2020 was a wake-up call to this white girl. Can I call myself a girl? Still yeah. a white woman, too. <laughs> I now understand much better how close to the surface racism lies for a lot of people and how easily our political leaders can ignite it and turn us against each other. But I stand by my attempt to not throw these people in rural Wisconsin under the bus. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's racism throughout this society. I think it is my responsibility as an observer to call out racism when I see it. But what I saw and heard in these communities were people just struggling to get by, wondering what had happened to their communities and trying to make sense of how power works, not, and it's not the way they would put it, right? That's right, my political right, science way right. of putting it, but how power works in the society and trying to figure out why, why were they feeling so much injustice? Yeah, I mean, the, the injustice, this calculation of injustice that you talk about is really that they're taking stock of their own uh, of their own situation and what has happened to yeah. maybe them personally or their community or the right. factory that left or the farmers that went bankrupt. And they look at all that and they don't hear much on the news 
decrying that injustice or, you know, lifting up those folks as having gotten screwed as as victims. So it's a little bit understandable is what I took that they would that they would be defensive about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I found it to be very understandable. Well, let me let me wrap things up with um, a couple of more forward-looking questions, kind of one question but sure. with two sides. Yeah. As you were describing how you, you walked into uh, diners and McDonald's and, and uh, gas station coffee pot gatherings and said, um, hi, can I join you? And for the most part received... Uh, a sort of perplexed but welcoming response, I do wonder if a person other than you, wasn't already known, could still do that today. So the first part of my question is, do you think that the divide and and the resentment, as you talk about, and the outrage has gotten worse? And then the flip of that is, do you see any promising signs of where the divide seems to be getting uh, broken down or where, you know, some some promising things where people are working. I do think it has gotten worse. But what I try to wrap my head around these days is, is it that our perception of it has gotten worse? Hmm. Or is that the same thing as it has actually gotten worse? And by that, I mean, I, I do think that even I personally would be a little bit more intimidated walking into a diner or a gas station in rural rural Wisconsin in 2022 than I was in 2007. But why is that? Is it actually that people are going to be more hostile towards me? Or is it because I, I and other people have been talking about how I'm going to be greeted with hostility? Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, I have encountered hostility a bit more and, but mainly by email uh, phone calls, surface mail, not face-to-face interactions, right? right. I, I do think people have gotten angrier and more hateful in general in this country mm-hmm. since 2007, unfortunately. Yeah. So I think that fear is real. But what does give me hope is that when given the chance, there's still so many examples of people being decent to one another, right? And I think our communication system is focused on provocation and by communication system, I mean both news and social media, right? Mm-hmm, right? It's focused on provocation. It's focused on conflict. It's not focused on Anthony reaching out to Kathy, forming a friendship that spans over years, talking about how they might repair a divide together. I think that kind of thing is way more common than we normally hear about. And Yes, if only people could, if only the headline could be the nice things that neighbors are doing to one another, (laughs) you know, like it, this, it's not as prominent in our psyche, the good things that people are doing, um, as opposed to the bad things. But, and it's not just neighbors, it's not just one off, but like the efforts that you are doing, um, that there's just so, there's a variety of kind of civic health efforts going on around the country that involve trying to figure out how people can be civil with one another and work on community problems together. And those kind of things give me hope, as do my students. And I think that's kind of trite to say when you're a a teacher, like, you know, oh, my students give me hope. But it's just so true Mm -hmm. because I see students every semester figuring out how to get along with one another in class, in the discussions I make them have, having a desire to for the world to be different to grow up into a world in which people are decent to one another and to the earth and 
they they do give me hope. Um, so your students I just think, just have it, excuse me for interjecting, but your students yeah. have really grown up in this time of such division that neither yeah. you nor I am a fair bit older than you, but neither one of us, I don't think, grew up with that being the norm, that being no. the context of interaction and communication. So for them, it's really going to have to take more work for them to have that empathy and, and to feel some hope yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. And our leaders have to shape up, truth <laughs> be told, true. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. seriously, 100%. they are not doing us a favor um, young people need to be shown that the way to move a society forward is to show each other dignity and compassion and respect. And they have not seen much of that in recent years. Wow. Dr. Kathy Kramer, uh, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and also the author of one of the most important books anybody listening could read, entitled The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker. And let me say that it is focused on Wisconsin and particularly the era of Scott Walker, but what Kathy learns and shares through the book is applicable across this country. So, Kathy, thank you again so much for taking the time. Uh, this has been a terrific way to launch our program, Two Worlds, One Country. Take care of yourself, Kathy. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me on.